0: Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.13, Agrippina Minor, In Want of a Husband. Last week, we left Agrippina on her lonely island exile, after her plot to overthrow her brother, the mad, bad Emperor Caligula, had been exposed. This week, we shall see what she did when she was finally freed. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my new Patreon supporters, Leanne, George, Catherine, and Amanda. I've been recording out of order quite a bit recently, so apologies if you've been waiting a bit for your thanks. But rest assured, your generous contribution will always be greatly received. You are awesome. If you too would like to be recognised for your levels of awesome, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The aftermath of the assassination of Caligula was one of history's great crossroads moments, and this is largely because the various opponents of the emperor had very different reasons for wanting him dead. For much the senatorial elite, this was the moment where the senate would finally hit back against the increasingly tyrannical principate and turn back the tide of power that was sweeping inexorably away from them. The consuls of the moment assembled the August body and demanded the end of the imperial dynasty that had been started by Augustus, the destruction of the temples to the Caesars, and some even demanded the repeal of every piece of legislation that they had ever passed. But the assassins of Caligula had, for the most part, not acted out of pure republican virtue. The ringleaders, in fact, had mostly acted in self-defence, taking the emperor out before he had the opportunity to add them to the growing list of traitors. Now that they had accomplished this, their main goal was to ensure that they achieved immunity from punishment. They would never be able to achieve that if power was returned to the senate, a famously corrupt body filled with enemies. No, they needed to find a new emperor, one whom they could control, someone who was, conveniently enough, safely in their custody. One of my favourite shows is an old British political sitcom slash satire called Yes Minister, and it's broadly about two people. Jim Hacker, a likeable yet inexperienced and not entirely competent government minister, and the head civil servant in his department, Sir Humphrey Appleby, who frustrates, blocks him at every turn, seeking to keep things as they are. I'm not really doing it justice here, trust me, it's brilliant and hilarious, Anyway, why am I telling you this? What's it got to do with Claudius? Well, in one episode, Sir Humphrey and his old boss are discussing who should replace the recently resigned Prime Minister. And their discussion reminds me very much of what must have been going through the minds of Caligula's assassins when they found his uncle Claudius hiding behind that curtain. So we're looking for a compromise candidate. Mm. Malleable? Flexible. Likeable. No firm opinion. No bright idea. Not intellectually committed. Without the strength of purpose to change anything. Someone who you know can be manipulated, professionally guided. And leave the business of government in the hands of the experts. (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. It's impossible. (laughs) A lot of the government would welcome a, shall we say, less interventionist leader. Just like Sir Humphrey, the assassins thought they had in their hands the perfect patsy. So they declared him emperor and dared the Senate to stop them. While this was going on, the Senate was still embarking on their series of high-powered denunciations of their former sovereign. But once they heard the news that the Praetorian Guard had taken Claudius into custody and declared him emperor they quickly scrambled to name a candidate of their own. Someone who could be a transitional leader that could shepherd Rome back to its republican roots. Two such candidates emerged. They were Marcus Vinicius and Valerius Asiaticus, both men who would end up being victims of Messalina. But the Senate quickly realised that they had been outmanoeuvred and backed down, recognising Claudius as their emperor the following day. This was the closest imperial Rome had come to a republican restoration thus far, and it spooked the men in the regime who were true believers in the Principate. These people equated the Republic with corruption, civil war, and ruin. In their narrative, Augustus had saved the empire from decades of conflict, and brought about decades of peace and prosperity. What had gone wrong since then was that his successors had strayed from the founders' magic formula – of ruling alone, but giving lip service to senatorial power, letting them have all the appearances of being special, while denying them any real power. Caligula had veered away from that and stomped on the senate's collective throat, and that was a big reason why he had fallen. That said, the regime were equally spooked by his assassination. Yes, Caligula had been awful, But the notion that one could just up and kill an emperor with whom you disagreed was not exactly one that they wanted to encourage. What if someone decided that they could do a better job than the new emperor? It could quickly lead to an orgy of coup and assassination that could destroy the empire. It was these fears, that of republican restoration on one hand, and assassination and replacement with an ambitious rival on the other, that would dominate the reign of Claudius. We talked about it a lot in the two episodes on Messalina, of course. Her motivation in aiding Claudius's early, fairly repressive regime was to simply ensure the survival of her husband and the accession of a son Britannicus. But while Messalina was a member of the extended Julio-Claudian family, she was not at the centre of the dynasty. And that is where Agrippina comes in. Like Livia, she was an ardent imperialist and a devoted hater of republicanism. She was a true believer, and while the killing of her brother helped her greatly on a personal level, its implications and immediate aftermath would have spooked her as much as anybody. Okay, so that's the general political landscape here, and of course we went into that in a bit of detail in the episodes on Messalina, But necessarily, I mostly left Agrippina out of the story of the first part of Claudius' reign, as of course the focus had been on his other wife. So Let's see how our heroine fared in Claudius's brave new world. One of the new emperor's first acts after coming to power was to recall Agrippina and her sister Livia from their island exile. Their crimes had been under the old regime. It was time for a fresh start. On returning to Rome, the sisters took it upon themselves to arrange the burial of their dead brother. Agrippina and Livia had been through so much, but they were still Julia claudians as Caligula had been. The proper rights and respects had to be paid to their brother, even if he had been, well, awful. His body had been initially cremated and ashes dumped in the gardens of an imperial palace without ceremony, but his sisters arranged for them to be exhumed, re-cremated, if such a thing is possible, and then placed in the mausoleum of Augustus with all pomp. In doing this, they were not just upholding family honour, This was also a decidedly political move. Remember that while Caligula had been hugely unpopular with the elite, he had been beloved by most of the people, largely because of his anti-senatorial policies. His killing was not met by great demonstrations, but it wasn't celebrated either. So, by honouring her brother, Agrippina was tapping into that rich vein of support, and, as the elder sister, essentially anointing herself as the new head of the bloodline of Germanicus their popularity which had never really gone away skyrocketed and this at least partly explains why the new empress Messalina was so keen to take them out for now she had nothing on Agrippina but she did manage to take out La Villa having her arrested and exiled on trumped up charges this time the youngest daughter of Germanicus would not survive her exile and would be intentionally starved to death. A sad end to a pretty crappy life. So that left Agrippina as the only one left standing. She was one of the six children of Germanicus and Agrippina Major, the most beloved couple in the empire. All of her siblings had made it into adulthood. But her father had been murdered, probably, her mother, ex and starved to death, the eldest brother had been betrayed by another brother to their enemies. Both of them died in prison or exile. Her younger sister Drusilla had tragically died young. Her youngest brother Caligula had been murdered. And now Lavilla had kicked the bucket. Or, I guess, more accurately, had the bucket forcibly withdrawn. Agrippina and her son Nero were now the final hope of the bloodline of Germanicus. She still had friends, but she was in a weak position. Lavilla had been taken down on the flimsiest of pretexts, and she was not half the political threat that Agrippina was, and everyone knew it. If she was going to survive, she needed to act fast and act smart. She had to keep a low profile and get some protection. This protection would need to be political, but also financial. Her family's inheritance and the wealth of her first husband had made her a very comfortably well-off woman before her exile, but then had been taken all away. Claudius had restored the property that Caligula had seized from her, but her brother's extravagances had left them badly depleted. So the best way to revive her political and financial fortunes, of course, was to get remarried. Remember, her first husband had died while she was in exile, and so now she cast about for hubby number two, and she had one man very much in mind. His name was Servius Sulpicius Galba, a man those of you who have read ahead will be familiar with, as he would later, albeit briefly, become an emperor of Rome. Right now, in 41 CE, he was a powerful man from proper patrician stock, and very proud of it indeed. He reportedly carried around a family tree that traced his own lineage back to Jupiter himself, and kept it on him at all times. Between him and the King of the Gods were a litany of consuls and military heroes. He himself had proved himself worthy of the family name, and served the regimes of Augustus, Tiberius, and Caligula with distinction, serving in the army in the provinces and becoming consul in 33. He had been particularly close with Livia, who had left him a ton of money in her will. In 20, he had married Amelia Lepida, the daughter of another rich and powerful Roman. Now, Agrippina has a great reputation for her intelligence, savviness, and cunning, but the sources portray her as playing this bit all wrong. Far from acting with subtlety and enticing Galba away from his wife, as, for example, Anne Boleyn had done with Henry VIII, she essentially tried to throw herself at Galba. Suetonius writes that Agrippina, quote, set a cat for Galba so obviously that, even before the death of his wife, Lepida's mother scolded her roundly before a company of matrons, and went so far as to slap her. This whole thing, though, seems a little unlikely to me, as Agrippina was doing her best to keep a low profile at this time, and so, with her undoubted political savvy, it seems unlikely that she would have been so dumb as to so publicly go on after a married man. Historians now seem to believe that she instead pursued Galba after his wife's death, when he was free to remarry, but the net result is still the same. He refused her. A marriage with Agrippina would, in normal circumstances, be a good move given her lineage, but Galba was not a noted risk taker. Marrying her would risk great danger, along with possible rewards, and so he passed her up. This would have been a bit of a body blow for Agrippina, but her need for a husband was still great, so she let herself off and went after the next target, and here she was more successful. This guy was Gaius Selustius Paseinus Crispus. Unlike Galba, Paseinus was not a man of great significance, except of course for his marriage to Agrippina, and so our knowledge of him is a little sketchy. As a young man, he was adopted by one of Augustus' and Tiberius' close advisors, who, incidentally, was the great-nephew of the historian of the late Republic, Sallust. His adopted father had been childless, and so when he died in 20 CE, Passaeinus inherited quite a bit of wealth, including a big estate over the Tiber from Rome. He was famed as an excellent public speaker, a highly prized skill in ancient Rome, and his speeches were recorded and remembered even decades later. He rose to the rank of consul twice, and even had a statue erected to him in the Forum. Between those two consulships, the final of which was in forty-four, he had been governor of the rich province of Asia, and had been noted for his generosity while over there. One historian that I have read describes him as, quote, "...a man of letters, a wit, with a sometimes cruel but always clever tongue." which I think sums him up rather well. He famously described the life of Caligula, first under Tiberius and then during his own rule, by saying that, the world has never seen a better slave, nor a worse master. For all of this, he managed to be a favourite of both Caligula and Claudius, and was thus an absolutely perfect match for Agrippina. He ticked every box, rich, powerful, and favoured by the regime there was just one tiny snag. Indeed, it was the same tiny snag as with Galba. He too was already married. His wife was actually her former sister-in-law, Domitia, and it seems that she too had some of Domitius' worst traits. Tacitus describes her as being immoral and cruel, and shared her brother's taste for cheating at the races. Indeed, brother and sister had ended up in a legal battle about the family wealth. It seems likely, therefore, that she and Agrippina were not exactly best buds, even before she stole her husband. We don't exactly know how Agrippina managed to get Pasainas to divorce his wife and marry her, but we can make a pretty good guess. Unlike Galbert, Pasainas was not from a great family, and so Agrippina's Julio-Claudian roots were far more enticing for him. This is backed up by the fact that Pliny describes him as being, quote, more distinguished when they married, a clear indication that this was the purpose of this match from his point of view. As with the Galbra affair, we don't know when this marriage took place, but it probably happened not too long after she returned from exile, so probably between 41 and 43 or so. As for their married life, we know precisely nothing – as the next report that we get is that Pasainas died. The marriage could have lasted a few months, it could have been as long as six years, we just don't know. But what we do know is that he named Agrippina as his sole heir, making her, once again, a very rich woman. Inevitably, the convenience of this death and the reputation that Agrippina would later garner has led to accusations of poisoning, but there is no evidence for this. I mean, to be fair, there's none to that she didn't do it, but that's not the way historical hypotheses work. Passinus was quite a bit older than Agrippina, and the marriage was probably as useful to her then as it had been when they first tied the knot, so it's most likely then that Passinus' death was the natural one. Given her need to keep a low profile, it is likely that Agrippina had spent much of her time while well married on her husband's estate – avoiding making any high-profile public appearances in Rome. Messalina was still reigning supreme there, with the full trust of Claudius and his close advisors, and so it would be a dangerous business to march into that nest of vipers. But, of course, you will all recall, this all changed around 47 CE, when Messalina made that series of major mistakes that we discussed in the series on her. Remember that she had first taken down Asiaticus on dodgy pretexts and then had the freedman Polybius executed. Her grip on power was loosening and Agrippina sniffed an opportunity to get back into the big time. Remember too that at the secular games, Messalina's son Britannicus and Agrippina's son Nero had been involved in one of the ceremonies and Nero had received the greater applause. These kinds of things were taken really seriously by the Romans. Their applause was an indication of their favour, and for Messalina, someone as paranoid of murder and rebellion as anyone in the regime, this was deeply troubling. Equally, it is not likely that this would have been down to chance. This was a highly choreographed occasion, and for a boy to gain more applause than the heir apparent could only have taken place thanks to careful planning, and the only person who could have done that was Agrippina. Her mastery of propaganda is also shown by what happened next. Nero, all through his life, had a fascination with snakes. Taster states that it was a commonly told tale around the time of the secular games that Nero had been watched over by serpents during his infancy, and it appears now that he kept one for protection as a nine-year-old. Well, again, these kinds of rumors don't just appear out of nowhere. Remember that Messalina was accused of attempting to have Nero killed by sending assassins into his bedchamber, but they had been chased away by his pet snake? No? Well, a lot of crazy stuff went down in that episode, so I wouldn't blame if it passed you by. This is how Suetonius describes the incident. Quote, Messalina, wife of Claudius, had sent emissaries to strangle Nero as he was taking his noonday nap, regarding him as a rival of Britannicus. The would-be assassins were frightened away by a snake, which darted out from under his pillow. The only foundation for this tale was that there was found in his bed near the pillow the slough of a serpent. But nevertheless, at his mother's desire, he had the skin enclosed in a golden bracelet, and wore it for a long time on his right arm. That last bit, where Agrippina has her son wear the bracelet, shows how well she understood how the game was played. What she was doing there is shifting the focus away from her and onto her son. While she was tainted with her past and by her womanhood, he was young, fresh, and the only living male heir of Germanicus. She wanted Roman society and the mob to see him as the rightful heir of the empire, and Messalina as the one who tried to have him murdered. She had managed to paint him as the future, and Messalina as the reactionary past and so enticed her into continuing to make attacks on them both. Attacks that would make she and Nero stronger, and Messalina weaker. That said, I don't think that she could have anticipated just how quickly Messalina's star would supernova. Her epic fall after her quote unquote marriage to Cilius probably caught her completely off guard. But thanks to her efforts, she had managed to position herself into a place of strength just at the right moment. Okay, so that brings us up to the point where we ended episode 1.11, and so it's probably worth, just quickly, moving away from Agrippina and getting the lay of the land. Messalina's attempted coup would have shaken Emperor Claudius. He had reigned for around eight years, and had been pretty successful for the most part. He had righted the wrongs of Caligula, Put the empire on decent footing, and even extended its borders with the successful conquest of Britannia. But the same fears and threats that had been present at the start of his reign, the ones that I went through at the start of the episode, were still present. His physical tics and handicaps meant that he just wasn't taken very seriously, despite those achievements, and so danger was ever present. Through it all, he had at least been able to count on the support of his freedmen and his wife but now his wife had betrayed him. Who would be next? Ironically, his position was not all that different from the one that Agrippina had found herself in when Claudius had recalled her from exile and then banished her sister. He joked to his Praetorian guard that he had forsworn women and that if he ever suggested marrying anyone else, they had position to kill him, but that was just talk. It was clear that he needed another marriage. The Emperor of Rome the most powerful man in the world needed a wife to help protect him. Someone with allies strong enough to keep the dark forces at bay. And there was no time to spare. But it was not just him that had skin in this game. The people charged with drawing up a short list of potential wives were his freedmen, and they weren't going to choose dispassionately. Remember, these freedmen were former slaves who now ran the imperial government and administration and were trusted with far more power by Claudius than the senatorial class. Each of them jostled for power and attention, keenly aware that the one most in the imperial favour would gain the best rewards. The most powerful freedmen at this time were Callistus, the head of the Justice and Law Department, Pallas, the head of the Treasury, and of course our old friend Narcissus, Claudius's secretary and Messalina's former favourite who had betrayed her to Claudius when it became clear that she was going to fall and likely take him down with her. He had been the most prominent of the freedmen so far, but both of his other colleagues sniffed out an opportunity to jump ahead of him. Thus, they each chose a different candidate to be the next empress, knowing that whichever one would favour them in the new administration. Callistus chose an old friend of ours, Lolia Paulina, now, extra points if you remember who she was. She was a former wife of Caligula, specifically the third one, who had been discarded because he believed her to be infertile. Her main claim to fame, aside from her former position, was that she was a very wealthy woman, always helpful in a wife. Narcissus, still bruised by his connection to Messalina, made the rather uninspired choice of favouring Aelia Petina, If that name rings a bell, then it's because she and Claudius had already actually been married. She had been his second wife, and had given birth to his daughter, Claudia Antonia. They had divorced for political reasons during the reign of Caligula, but that was all in the past now. She would be the most frictionless candidate. They already knew and liked each other, she was not known to cause trouble, and she even had a stepson who might be able to step in as heir until Britannicus came of age. Pallas was the one who pushed Agrippina, and it was for all the reasons that you would expect. She was a Julio-Claudian, the daughter of Germanicus, a direct descendant of Augustus. There was literally no nobler woman in the empire than her. The sources report that Claudius was completely torn apart by this decision, pulled hither and thither. So he called the three freedmen in for a roundtable discussion to help settle it once and for all. This was all reported by Tacitus, and I will quote from his account. He says that Narcissus went first, and that he, quote, "...dwelt on the marriage of years gone by, on the tie of offspring, for Patina was the mother of Antonia, and on the advantage of excluding a new element from his household, by the return of a wife to whom he was accustomed, and who would assuredly not look with a stepmother's animosity on Britannicus and Octavia, who were next in affections to her own children." Callistus argued that she was compromised by her long separation, and that, were she to be taken back, she would be supercilious on the strength of it. It would be far better to introduce Lolia, for, as she had no children of her own, she would be free from jealousy, and would take the place for mother towards her stepchildren. Pallas, again, selected Agrippina for special commendation, because she would bring with her Germanicus's grandson, who was thoroughly worthy of imperial rank, the scion of a noble house, and a link to unite the descendants of the Claudian family. He hoped that a woman who was the mother of many children and still in the freshness of youth would not carry off the grandeur of the Caesars to some other house. This advice prevailed, backed up as it was by Agrippina's charms. On the pretext of her relationship, she paid frequent visits to her uncle, and so won his heart that she was preferred to others, and though not yet his wife, already possessed a wife's power. Whether such a debate actually happened, or whether this is all just highly convenient exposition, is unknown. But the fact is that Agrippina likely had this sewn up already, and she had so many advantages. As Pallas is reported to have said, she was a pure-blood Julian, directly descended from Augustus, And so, marrying Claudius would unite the family bloodlines once again. This would reduce the threat of a coup from inside the family and would also negate the risk of some upstart entering into it at the highest level. She also brought with her the heir to Germanicus, not only a great public relations boost, but also a helpful spare in case anything should happen to Britannicus. She and Claudius also shared a common worldview. They were imperialists believing that the empire's great strength lay in the stability and unity of the Julio-Claudian dynasty anything else would lead to division and ruin they viewed themselves as the heirs of Augustus and Livia in every way and now was their chance to rule like them for Agrippina of course this was the absolute ideal match she needed someone rich and influential to help protect her from attacks by powerful enemies well, she was now poised to marry the Emperor of Rome. There was no one better to do that. Her other priority, of course, was to promote her son Nero, and to give him the best possible future that she could. Like her mother, she believed her family had been cheated out of the Imperial crown when Germanicus had been killed. As the mother of his only male heir, she saw it as her duty to ensure that he was added to the Imperial succession plans. And this Was the perfect opportunity. But there's always a snag, and you've likely already picked up on this. Claudius and Agrippina were related. Now, of course, Julio Claudians marrying each other is hardly news, it had been their pattern from the very beginning. But this was different, as this was not the marriage of cousins. No, this was an uncle marrying his niece, which, even for the Romans, was gross. In fact, it was more than that, it was against the law. Indeed, it was the perceived immorality of this match that writers at the time claim was the reason for the regime's fall. In Octavia, a play usually attributed to Seneca, one of the characters claims that Claudius, quote, "...took to himself by incestuous marriage, a wife who was the daughter of a brother, has intermingled the race by a most deplorable and impropitious nuptial knot." Hence it is that a whole series of crimes has been the outcome. Murders, wholesale treacheries, the terrible grasping for power, and that thirst for the cruel shedding of blood. Tacitus goes on a similar vein, claiming that, There was no precedent for the introduction of a niece into an uncle's house. It was positively incest, and if disregarded, it would, people feared, issue in calamity to the state. Indeed, the reaction was so negative that the marriage plans had to be delayed and some political theatre arranged. Claudius and Pallas knew that this would never work if he forced this rather unpalatable marriage down everyone's collective throat. Instead, he had to be seen to be against it by having finally yielded to the incessant demands of the Senate and the people. It's the oldest political trick in the book. It's how aspiring party leaders or presidential candidates emerge. They state that they have no immediate ambitions to become leader, but don't totally rule it out, and then use surrogates to publicly urge them to stand, before finally giving in to the popular will. To quote the Cylons and J.M. Barry, all of this has happened before, and all of this will happen again. Their surrogate was Vitellius. Now, you remember him as being one of Messalina's former flames, but he had managed to slyly dodge the fallout of her fall. In fact, he was an incredible survivor, having attended Tiberius while he was on Capri, where he also won the favour of Caligula due to their shared love of the races. There aren't many men who managed to keep the support of so many of the Julio-Claudian emperors and maintain such a powerful position. Some of you also may know that he, like Galba, would briefly reign as emperor in the wake of Nero's death. He led the charge for the match in the senate, delivering a powerful speech that Tacitus summarises in his annals. First, he addressed Claudius, asking if he would accept the will of the senate and the people should they present a united will. When the emperor said that, of course he would, he then addressed the assembled senate. He said that, Quote, the very burdensome labours of the emperor in a world-wide administration required assistance, so that free from domestic cares he might consult the public welfare. How again could there be a more virtuous relief for the mind of an imperial censor than the taking of a wife to share his prosperity and his troubles, in whom he might entrust his inmost thoughts and the care of his young children, unused as he was to luxury and pleasure and want from his earliest youth to obey the laws. If I may briefly interject, this is really interesting, as it is a good summary of essentially what the ideal empress was supposed to be in the eyes of many contemporary Romans, i.e. a source of comfort and advice, and a mother to his children. Back to Vitellius, after getting some approval for this statement, He said that, since they all agreed on the need for an emperor to have a wife, it was obvious that she be A, as noble and pure as possible, and B, already a mother of children. So here, he is defining the criteria very cleverly, making it sound broad and agreeable, but in fact rigging it so much that Agrippina was the only correct answer. He reminded them that she was the most noble woman around, and that she was also a mother. He also stroked their collective ego, saying that this was a great opportunity for the senate to flex their muscles, as the precedent would be set that they could have a role in determining whom the emperor could marry. It was only then, with his audience in the palm of his hand, that he addresses the thorny issue of incest. It will be said marriage with a brother's daughter is, with us, a novelty. True, but it is common in other countries, and there is no law to forbid it. Marriage of cousins were long unknown, but after a time, they became frequent. Custom adapts itself to expediency, and this novelty will thereafter take its place among recognised uses. After he finished, friends and allies of Agrippina rushed out of the Senate and onto the streets, threatening violence and revolution if the law wasn't changed to allow uncles to marry nieces. This enthusiasm attracted a great crowd of people, many of them no doubt clients of Agrippina, who also demanded that the marriage be allowed to take place. At the expedient moment, Claudius came down and met the throng and made a great show of listening to their arguments. Then he and the senators returned to the chamber, whereupon he formally moved the law be changed, allowing a man to marry his brother's daughter. The law passed, Indeed, it would remain on the books for 300 years, repealed only after the Christianization of the empire. Claudius and Agrippina wasted no time in making their union official, marrying in a hastily organised ceremony whose details are lost to history. The significance of the union, though, has not been lost on any historian of Claudius' reign. The emperorship of Agrippina would be very different from that of Messalina. She would work with the senate, not against them as Messalina did. Instead of reigning through sex and terror, she would adopt the Livian model and rule in great part in concert with her husband. But she has also inherited much of Livia's legacy that of the power hungry, overmighty wife pursuing her own agenda at the expense of the empire, and of course that of the murderous mother killing anyone who stood in the way of her beloved son. Sadly, however, You will have to wait until next week before we get into all that excitement.